Thank you, Hanji. Oh, thank you. All right. Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala anihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad salatan tunjina biha min jameel ahwali wal afat wa taqtilana biha jameel hajat wa tutahiruna biha min jameel sayyat wa tarfa'ana biha ala darajat wa tutahiruna biha ahsan bayati min jameel khairati fin hayati wa ba'da bin Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa barik alayhi wa ala anihi Welcome back, everyone who's back. Before we begin, two comments. The first is that next Sunday, we will not be meeting. Next Sunday is the Labor Day weekend, right? Yeah, Labor Day weekend, we're not meeting. So, inshallah, we'll continue the week after. Uh, Sheikha will be traveling, so it's going to be hard. And then um, the other thing is just in the beginning to mention, I know that we're on the fourth session now, and we haven't gotten very far. And people are dropping like flies so to speak, but, um, uh, you know, there's something that used to happen when we were studying in Egypt, and uh, quite frankly, we used to be annoyed with it, <laughs> uh, but in retrospect, I changed my opinion on it, so that was that whenever we start a class, the intro to the class would be, like, as long as the class, you know, so, Start the class, Sheikh is in the Muqaddimah, he's doing the introduction, the introduction just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going, you know, like subhanAllah, it keeps going. And then once you get to the text, you just finish. You go kind of quick. And what we learned over time was that the reason why they would do this is because they're using the introduction as an opportunity to, as I mentioned last week, try to put some of the furniture in the right place. So you take the pieces, you put them in the right place and you frame it the way that you want it to be framed in the context of the tradition and any number of issues and so on. And then once you do all of that, it just goes. So it's then it's easy, you go afterwards, it's very quick. Uh, so, you know, be patient inshallah um, that we can get through this and know that it won't always be like that, you know, especially because we're first starting here in this city and to be honest, I, I've been away from this city for a long time. I don't really know where people are at. I don't know what they're thinking, what, what they've been influenced by, what they haven't been influenced by, what their position is on any number of things. And so there's a lot of kind of foundations we have to lay uh, before. Otherwise, when we get later on, we'll keep stopping, right? Uh, so yeah, it's a little bit choppy in the beginning, but then that makes it so that it goes smooth later on, inshallah. So let's continue. We're in the fourth session today. If you have the translation, I'm on mine is on page nine. Mine is on page nine. I'm going to start with this piece. <clears throat> so we had just read the hadith of the Prophet that the similitude of the religious scholars on earth is that of the stars in the sky by which people are guided through the darkness of the land and sea. If the stars are extinguished, even the guides might stray. Um, so we had left off on that last time. We don't have to revisit it so much. But of course, the important reminder always is that 
when we say religious scholar, we don't just mean anyone who has that title. Like there are descriptions of those people. Next chapters will go over it. There's descriptions of who those people are. And if someone is not from that category, then they're not from that category, either from something that they did or something that they, uh, whatever it might be. The reality is we know in our lives that if you don't know something, you can't really judge something, right? So if, if you don't know anything about construction, for example, you can't come to the house and be like, oh, it looks like a good house. It looks like it's sturdy. You don't know. You look at it, it looks, someone put some paint on it. This happens, right? <laughs> Especially in the market we're in right now. Someone put some paint on the house. House looks really great. Buy the house. Next thing you know, there's a foundation issue. It was underneath. You didn't realize it. Some of the plumbing was messed up. You didn't realize the plumbing was messed up, right? There's an electric issue. The house just like catches on fire. You're living, you know, I would be Allah protect us and our families and our communities. But if you don't know, you don't know. So people always say in the, um, in the valley of the blind, the one-eyed one man is king, right? So the person has one eye. And then sometimes you're in a valley of people with one eye, but someone has two eyes. It's like, wow, you know, they really see an angle that other people don't see. But if we don't know, we don't know. And that's why to perhaps my own detriment sometimes, I really emphasize this point, um, even though people don't usually understand it, you know? Because what have we seen as Muslims in America? The reality is, we have very, very rarely seen actual scholars. That's that's the reality. Alhamdulillah, we have like some really amazing people, some really sincere people. We have people who are um, trying to do their best, but that doesn't make them scholars. Like there's there's a definition, and you know. So, and sometimes what happens when people are in a position, <clears throat> if we don't hold that standard there. Like last week, I was making the example of doctors and nurses and stuff, right? So if you have like one doctor, but you really need the doctor to be a nurse, then sure, the doctor will be a nurse, but like no one else will ever become a doctor, right? Because that person is being a nurse. But um, if, if, if you had a nurse, that's all you had, and you had no doctors, then very short, very soon, probably the nurse is going to be seen as a doctor, right? I remember like, oh, look at this doctor. This doctor's doing an amazing job helping people. Some people are dying, but some people are being helped. And like, you know, it's so great. But they're a nurse in the end. They're not, they're not actually a doctor, you know? So it's just, um, you know, it's really, uh, some people when they read these kind of things or they hear these kind of things or they read the biographies of the righteous people and scholars and stuff like that, they get um, very negative and very guilt, guilty and like, oh, I'm so bad. They were so good, stuff like that. It's not the point. Point is actually to say, like, look at what human beings can do. Look how amazing these people were. SubhanAllah, look at the things they did. Look at the aspirations they had to do good and to bring good into the world and so on. This metaphor is penetrating for the path to understanding Allah. This metaphor is penetrating, comma, for the path to understanding Allah's oneness, experiential knowledge of Allah, his divine rulings, and his rewards and punishments are not attained through empirical knowledge. So we spent some time last time talking about the difference between outward knowledge and experiential knowledge. So here he uses the term experiential knowledge versus empirical knowledge. So empirical knowledge, right? Like something you see, something you touch, something you analyze with your head. But experiential knowledge is that thing that's in the heart, right? And, 
And we mentioned last week that, you know, you find people that you're like, subhanAllah, their iman is so pure. Their, their belief is so strong, despite everything they're, they're going through, despite their difficulties, everything else. But, you know, uh, that's experiential. It's, it's experience. It's real. It's, it's been tasted. Rather, they are known through divine revelation. He has made this clear in his book on the tongue of his messenger, وسلم, the scholars are the guides through the darkness of ignorance, ambiguity, and deviation. When these guides are lost, the travelers go astray. Everyone just makes up their own way, right? And you can't blame them, actually. Like, if you were looking to guides, and the guides kept doing things that don't make sense, or the guides kept doing things that took you in the wrong direction, or the guides kept doing things that hurt you, you know? You were like, I have some water, and they were like, don't drink it. You're like, but... We're in the desert and like dehydration is a threat and I'm starting to feel dizzy and I can't really focus. And I'm like, don't drink it. Don't drink the water. And so then what are you going to do next time? You might survive that, but next time you need some help, what are you going to do? I'm going to ask the guy. <laughs> be like, forget it. I'm going to decide for myself. Am I going to drink the water or not? And this is what happens, right? So one of the consequences of not having uh, like really true, serious scholarship is a communal obligation on the Muslims to, to come up with, as we mentioned last time, is that people will start to make up their own religion. And some people will do that in like a really um, some people will do that in like a really conservative way. Some people will do that in a really liberal way. Some people will do that in a, in a way that actually looks good and makes sense. Some people will do it in a way that's totally off, right? And sometimes you don't see the consequence until a generation after. And this maybe is its own conversation to be had. And, uh, you know, we can look at Islam in Southern California and kind of think about this one. How, what happened over, over one generation, over two generations? Where are some ideas that like a people maybe who were raised in a Muslim environment had some ideas that maybe pushed some boundaries too far. But it worked for them because they had a certain upbringing. But then when they brought those ideas to a generation of people that were raised here, it went to a whole different direction, right? So, yeah, it's because if you're going to make it up yourself, you might make it up yourself and it works and makes sense. But someone else will make it up themselves and go in a different direction. As we talked about last time, you don't have to look too far. One side is people who just reject everything. And the other side is people who are extremists, right? Both of them, they follow the same methodology, actually. Both of them, their methodology is, here's the Quran, here's the Hadith. I'm going to do whatever I feel like from it, and it's going to go in different directions. The religious scholars have been likened to the stars, which provide three benefits. They guide people through the darkness, they adorn the sky, and they are missiles that repel the satans who ascend the heavens. It's really interesting, actually. They guide through the darkness, they adorn the sky, and there are missiles that repel the satans who ascend the heavens. So even you can use this, right? This is what the stars do. So you think about like someone who's a religious teacher. Think about, do they do these things? Right? Do they do they actually provide sound guidance for people? Do they um, do they adorn the sky? Because really, it's like the most beautiful the most beautiful thing actually is someone who really knows God, someone who lives a life that's in the remembrance of God and the way of the, following the way of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's the most beautiful thing, and you see them they they live life just like everyone else lives life in a sense, right? Like they go to work, they take care of their families, they have their children, they have whatever else that they're doing and working on and everything, but they're different because the, the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is uh, illuminating everything. Uh, 
and they repel the satans who ascend the heavens and you know like they say about Sayyidina Omar radiallahu an, that if he took one way, shaitan would go the other way, right? People, some people are like that. <clears throat> shaitan will be like, forget this one. I want to go for like their kids. <laughs> it's Ali Bilal, you know? But this one's too hard. Allah protect us. The religious scholars possess these characteristics. They guide through the darkness of ignorance. They adorn the earth and they are missiles that repel the Satan's who mix truth with falsehood and introduce heretical innovation in religion. Such innovations are introduced by people following their own whims. <laughs> also, if I said this, and, you know, question answers are always the playground for fun things, but many times people's statement that something is Vida is actually a Vida. I'll just say that many times their statement this is a bid'ah is a bid'ah. Their their statement this is an innovation is an innovation. Like this thing's an innovation, but nobody else considered it an innovation. Only you consider it an innovation. So that means you're the one who is the innovation, you know. But anyways, uh, I'll give you a practical example of San Diego Muslim community. When you stand for salat, how do you put your feet? <laughs> here we're gonna here we're gonna maybe open open a little bit of box i think it happens on both sides do you find this phenomenon of like people who are really adamant about touching the foot touch the foot right who, from the four imams who said it hmm? not that i know i asked him i asked not him i asked someone who with Shafi with us. As far as I know from the four madhabs, nobody said it. All of them said, you just stand like you would normally stand. Probably about a hand length between your feet. You, know, you stand comfortably and make sure there's no gaps like shoulder to shoulder, stuff like that. But you don't have to like actually hit the person's foot. So then you have people who are really adamant about the foot thing. But it's like, who said it? For, out of the four madhabs who said it. And if the four madhabs didn't say it, it's possible someone else said it, of course. It's possible someone else said it. But at least we can recognize that the four madhabs didn't say you should do that. And they had a really good understanding of what the Salaf did. Okay, like it's really important we understand this. Abu Hanifa is from the Salaf, by the way. Like when people say, I follow the Salaf, and so they should be Hanafi. He's, Abu Hanifa is from the Salaf. He's Tabi. He met the Sahaba, radiallahu so it's, uh, you know, these are interesting things. Someone says, <clears throat> when someone passes away, you can't read Quran and give them the reward. And intend for them the reward. Okay, again, like, okay, so at least let's look. That is a position that exists, okay? But let's look, what did the four methods say? Four methods said, you can do that. Some of them said it's permissible. Some of them said it's recommended. Okay, so like, you know, there's an innovation here, but it's not the one you think it is. So as long as knowledge remains, people will be guided. But sacred knowledge will remain as long as the scholars remain. When the scholars dwindle in number, people fall into error. The Prophet ﷺ relates this meaning in a sound hadith. It's a very scary thing. Allah does not withdraw knowledge by extracting it from the hearts of men and or women. Rather, he takes away the religious scholars. When no religious scholar remains, people take the ignorant as their leaders. 
These ignorant ones are questioned and give religious verdicts without knowledge. They are astray and lead others astray. It's the actual statement of the Prophet That's why he's a Prophet. <clears throat> Tirmidhi relates from Jubair ibn Nufair on the authority of Abu Darda. We were with the Prophet and he said, there will be a time when knowledge will be snatched from the people. There will be time when knowledge is snatched from, will be snatched from the people. <clears throat> Sorry. My legs don't have a heritage that sits on the floor. <laughs> and yet, I like to sit on the floor. We were with the Prophet when he said, there will be a time when knowledge will be snatched from the people until they will be unable to benefit from it. SubhanAllah. Isn't that true? Like things, things, people become so unaware of things that when they become aware of it, they still can't benefit from it. Ziyad ibn Lubayd said, O Messenger of Allah, وسلم, how will Allah seize knowledge from us when we recite the Quran? I swear by Allah, we recite it and teach it to our women and children. <laughs> It's like so accurate, subhanAllah. Like, uh, <clears throat> he said, may your mother be bereaved of you, Ziyad. I used to consider you one of the learned people of Medina. The Torah and the gospel are with the Jews and the Christians, yet they do they benefit from them in any way? Jubair ibn Nufair said, I met Ubadah ibn Samit and, he said to, and said to him, will you not listen to what Abu Darda is saying? I then informed him of what he said concerning the loss of knowledge. He said, Abu Darda has spoken truthfully. If you wish, I will inform you of the first knowledge to be removed from people. It is humility, khushu'a. You will enter the central masjid and hardly find a single humble person. Khushu'a is, it's a hard word to translate, so you kind of have to choose something, uh, like many words are. It's not entirely humility. There's also like, um, there's like a, a flavor of um, reverence to it. Like it's a humility that is born out of someone realizing that Allah sees them, right? So because they realize that Allah sees them, there's a humility to them that is particular. Right? This is khushu'a. So, so this is the first knowledge that will be lost. You'll enter the central masjid, like the main masjid of a center, and uh, you won't find a single person who has khushu'a. Nasa'i relates a similar hadith from Jubair ibn Nufair on the authority of Awf ibn Malik from the Prophet He says in this hadith, the Prophet mentioned the straying of the Jews and the Christians despite their possessing scriptures. Uh, as always, when you hear things about the Jews and the Christians, the point is not to hate on the Jews and the Christians. The point is to recognize that these were a people who had scripture. These were a people who had guidance. And somehow there were ways in which that guidance did not benefit them. So the goal is not to look at it and to hate on them. The goal is to look on it and to say, subhanAllah, how are we similar to that? Do we have this too? You know, do we memorize the Quran but don't understand it? Do we read the hadith but don't really get it? So on and so forth. Jubair ibn Nufair also related, I mentioned that ibn Aws and informed him of the hadith of Awf ibn Malik and he said he has spoken the truth. So it's interesting actually what's, what you know you notice, look what happened. First one was Jubair ibn Nufair narrates from Abu Darda tells the hadith. Then the second one says, Jubair ibn Nufair, same person, said, I met Ubadah ibn Samit and I told him the hadith that I heard and I talked to him about it. Then the third one comes 
And it says, Jubair ibn Nufair related, I met Shaddad ibn Aus and I informed him of the hadith of Auf ibn Malik. So look, he got this hadith, he's thinking about it. And he's going around to these different people, he's talking to them about the hadith. And they're authorities, right? So they're people who would know about this hadith, they know about the Prophet them. he tells them, I heard this thing from them, what do you think about it? So each one's giving their own take. Uh, Shaddad said, he has spoken the truth, shall I not inform you about the first occurrence of the lifting of knowledge? Humility will be lifted to the point you will not see a single humble person. So he said that he affirmed the same thing. Imam Ahmed relates a hadith in which Ziyad ibn Ubaid mentioned something whereupon the Prophet said, that will be in a time, that will be in the time when knowledge is gone. Sallam, ya Rabbi, sallam. Ziyad mentioned this hadith and said, do not the Jews and Christians read the Torah and the gospel without acting on it in any way. In this version of the hadith, Ziyad did not mention the ensuing events contained in longer versions. All of these narrations relate that, relate that the departure of knowledge resides in the failure to act upon it. The companions explained that the reason for this is the passing of inner knowledge from the hearts, with inner knowledge referring to humility. And this event, Hadifa relates, surely humility will be the first knowledge to be lifted. It's very important, profound. Um, when Omar died, they said when Sayyidina Omar died, nine tenths of knowledge was lost. So you have to ask yourself, like, what does that mean? You know, because all of the empirical knowledge was still there. Right? Like for whatever knowledge he had from the hadith, from the hadith, <clears throat> excuse me, he passed it on. Um, whatever knowledge he had. Uh, from fatwa, like the conclusions of the hadith and the Quran and stuff, he would give it, he'd answer questions and stuff. So we know a lot about what Omar knew. And yet when he died, nine-tenths of it was lost because there was a reality to what was in the heart of Sayyidina Omar that was really significant. Same thing with Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Ahmed, Sayyidina Ali. Chapter 3, Knowledge of the Tongue and the Heart. Here we go. He's, he's warming up. Ibn Rajab is catching, he's getting, um, his momentum is building. Knowledge of the tongue and the heart. Sacred knowledge, says Hassan al-Basri, is of two types. Knowledge of the tongue, which is the proof of Allah against the son of Adam, and knowledge of the heart, which is beneficial knowledge. Meaning what? The knowledge of the tongue is actually a proof against the person. Hassan attributes this narration to the Prophet relates in Sahih. Muslim people will recite the Quran and it will fail even to go past their clavicles. Whereas if it reaches their hearts and becomes rooted therein, it will be of tremendous benefit. It's a very important narration. It says people recite the Quran, but it doesn't go past their throat. It doesn't go past their ear. You know, so there's a there's a physical process that's happening with the recitation of the Quran. But it's not coming into here. It's not getting in their heart. And this is, I think, one of the big challenges. Right? The challenge is, even if I begin to learn some things, how can I cross the barrier between the mind and the heart? How can I cross the barrier between the mind and the heart? And I think that, especially for people, you know, those of us, um, maybe I shouldn't say it that way. If people who are raised here, like especially people went to colleges, stuff like that, it's an extreme, almost rationalist approach, right? 
seemingly. Uh, everything is about thinking about it and analyzing it and considering it and looking at these angles and that angles. And of course, intellectually, we should be strong, but uh, not at the risk of it not passing here. So we, we want it to get in the heart. And, you know, this is something that you see from, from real scholars is, is it's a really interesting thing. It's a really amazing thing, actually. Because it's not easy, you know? It's like some things, they're not complementary skill sets per se. You know, like if you're counseling people all the time, that's a very different mindset and skill set and thinking about problems and questions. It's a different mindset and skill set, for example, than organizing something. Well, when you organize it, you have to think about space and logistics and volunteers and people problems and like all this kind of stuff. That's one set of things. The other side of things is, you know, people are dealing with whatever issues people have. Um, sometimes the intellectual side, the reality is when people do the intellectual side really hard, they often neglect the spiritual side. That's a very common uh, challenge for students of Islamic knowledge, uh, because oftentimes people are studying like 8, 10, 12 hours a day, you know. And you do that day in and day out and you're arguing and you're having debates and discussions and memorizing things and, you know, going back and forth and stuff. And it's very easy to just, your heart just dies, you know. Um, especially they say this about the mutakallimun, people who specialize in philosophy and aqidah and stuff like that. They're always arguing. So because they're always arguing, it leads to a certain state of heart. At the same time, you can have the opposite problem is that people who do like, everything is about worship to them. Everything is about Allah. They're so on Allah. The, the actual like process of how to think about something or analyze something sometimes gets lost. So you'll say something to them and they're like, yeah, but it's all from Allah in the end. It's like, yeah, it's all from Allah, but that was wrong. You know, like that wasn't the right way to do it. That wasn't the right approach. It's from Allah. I agree. Everything is from Allah, but that's still oppression. Like that's, that still wasn't the way that something should have been done, you know? So being able to balance these things is one of the paradoxes in a sense. And one of the gifts of the way of the prophets and all of the prophets. They're in very, very intelligent, very sharp, and at the same time, very connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And some of the, uh, you know, a lot of people throw shade in the, at Al-Azhar. Um, if we're to give the benefit of the doubt, we'll say it's because they just don't know, they don't understand. If we don't give the benefit of the doubt, you know, there's many other possible conclusions as to why that might be the case. And it's a big place, you know, there's corrupt people for sure. You know, there's there's people who have capitulated to different types of pressures. There's all kinds of things, all kinds of scholars. But the archetype person is someone who is like so profoundly masterful in the in the intellectual tradition that they write in it and they contribute to it and they do what they do in it and so on and so forth. And at the same time, they're totally connected with the people and they live their life with the people and they love the people and so on and so forth. And you would see it over and over again, you know. Uh, there's lots of stories about it, but I don't want to go too much on a tangent. But my point is to say that the ideal is one can sort of combine between these two things and know how to put the different things in their proper places. Mm. 
and you hear it from the early imams you know people for us we hear these stories we think they're like fabrications or something and I'll, I'll admit that there were times in my life where I probably felt that way a little bit. Like, you know, I don't know about all these stories. Like Abu Hanifa prayed Fajr with the wudu of Aisha for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or whatever, the, a couple decades, you know, <laughs> he prayed, prayed Fajr with the wudu of Aisha for that long. He was up all night praying and worshiping and everything else, right? So then people will be like, well, that's impossible. I don't know, like when you read these people's lives and you see their work, you know what I mean? Like you, you read their works because we have all these things. So you read their works in philosophy, you read their works in Aqidah, you read their works in Fiqh, you read their life stories. You read, and then you see this being there, it's being said about generation upon generation of people, not like one person or two people, but like thousands of people, you know, that they have these amazing feats that they would do. They would pray X amount of Raqqa, they would pray. And they're the same ones who are writing these books, you know? So that's that's ideally, you know, people are able to do that. May Allah help us. People will recite the Quran and it may fail even to go past their clavicles, whereas if it reaches their hearts and becomes rooted therein, it will be of tremendous benefit. In this manner, does beneficial knowledge touch the heart and impress upon it experiential knowledge of Allah, awareness of his sublimity and humility towards him. It bestows upon the heart exaltation, glorification, and love for Allah. When these characteristics settle into the heart, it is humbled. And the limbs similarly affected then follow in humility. <clears throat> uh, one of the things about this is that this knowledge of Allah, this awareness of Allah leads a person to this humility, right? The humility means that one accepts that they need help. You know, like that I, I am unable, I am incapable, I don't have much. And I, you know, Ibn Atta that says, Ana dalil, ana ajiz, ana da'if. Ana dalil, ajiz, da'if. One other one I can't remember right now, but they're all like, basically you can't do anything. And they say the irony of this is that only in accepting that can you do all of those things. Can you have anything? Because when you accept that I have nothing in front of Allah, only with does the person have any quwa. Because it's from Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So like this recognition is really important. And why sometimes like, you know, even, even like with these gatherings, people are like, you should advertise more, you should get the message to advertise it, so on and so on. I'm like, yeah, we could, but like, I just want people to come if they want to come. I want people to come because it's like the popular thing to do or because like their friend, you know, like I'm going to look a certain way if I come or like this kind of stuff. You just come if you want to come. Otherwise, there's no benefit anyways. <laughs> like It's like the story of the, the sheikh who was sitting with his students. One of my favorite stories because you see it happen a lot. And <clears throat> someone came and asked him questions and stuff. The sheikh gave very, very short answers. And afterwards, Students are like, Shaykh, how come we've seen you answer these kind of things? Sometimes you say a lot. How come you said something like really short? And he said, because the person came and their cup was already full. And if the cup is already full, you can't add anything to it. So like, what am I going to say? You know, and, you know, some people think, well, you're judging the person and this and that. And believe me, if you're doing this all the time, 
you can tell. <laughs> like, there's a limit at which you can tell. You have to be careful with your judgments because, like, obviously you could be wrong sometimes, right? But sometimes you can feel, and sometimes it's not just that you're like I was in a gathering recently, and uh, there I was supposed to give a reminder at some point. And the group conversation went a certain direction and like people were having whatever. And they're like, okay, so do you want to give you a reminder now? And I was like, no, I, I don't actually. <laughs> it's just not, it's not the time for, no one's going to hear it right now. Like let them break for lunch. They can have lunch. And then after lunch, let's see. Maybe, maybe they'll be ready to hear something then. But it's not always that people are ready to hear something, you know. Allah help us. And, you know, this, this dua, um, Allah make us from those who You know, Allah make us from those who hear the best of speech and follow it. You know, may Allah make us from those who see truth as truth, and He gives us the ability to follow it, and that see falsehood as falsehood, and He helps us to stay away from it. As related in Sahih Muslim, the Prophet used to say, I seek refuge in Allah from knowledge which is of no benefit, and from a heart which is not humble. Look at the connection. I seek Allah's refuge and knowledge that does not benefit and a heart that does not have humility because they're related. As for knowledge on the tongue, it is a proof of Allah against people. The Prophet said, the Quran is the proof of Allah for you or against you. It's for you or against you. The Quran is very scary. When inner knowledge departs, outer knowledge remains on people's tongues as a proof against them. This, I feel like I'm just going to like, Allah might just take my life while he teaches This knowledge then leaves the possession of the scholars. Nothing then remains of religion except its name and knowledge of, and nothing of the Quran except its script. As for the Qur'an, it will remain in the book containing it, then at the end of time it will be raised from the books, and nothing will remain in the books, nor in the hearts. Inner and outer knowledge. Scholars who categorize knowledge divide it into inner and outer knowledge. Inner knowledge is that which touches the hearts and instills in them fear, humility, awareness of Allah's sublimity, exaltation, love, intimacy, and yearning. Outer knowledge is that which remains on the tongue as a means for establishing the proof of Allah against people. Wahab ibn Munabbi wrote to Mak'ud, these are scholars from the Tanzanian. Surely you are a man who has attained the outer knowledge of Islam and thereby gained honor. That used to be the case, by the way. You know, still the case in some places and circles. But like, if someone was a scholar, they'd be uh, honored. <clears throat> Recently, just this week, there was a post from a masjid in the Midwest who was saying, we're looking to hire an imam. We want them to be young. We want them to be able to connect to people. We want them to be very knowledgeable. We're willing to compensate X amount between this to this. And it was a very respectable salary, especially for the Midwest, you know? And within a few hours, the post was gone. Do you know why? Because of the amount of negative comments about the amount of pay that the person would receive. <laughs> so they took down the post. Was filled like the comment section was filled with people like, How are you going to pay him this much? They're just to this, you know, can't pay a scholar this and this and this. It's true, some people don't deserve to be paid, but if they really know their stuff, take for think, for example, that someone who's working in that role, if their kids are in school, they very rarely see their kids. Think of, people don't think about that, you know, like you're going to work weekends, you're going to work nights. 
when are you gonna see your family if your family's in school? You know, it's all kinds of stuff like this. Anyways, it's not the point. Think about that one on your own. But uh, look what he says to him. It's more important than all of that. Surely you are a man who has attained the outer knowledge of Islam and thereby gained honor. So seek the inner knowledge of Islam and gain the love of Allah and nearness to him. Another version relates that he wrote, because of your outer knowledge, you have gained status and honor with the people. So seek inner knowledge to seek status with Allah and nearness to him. You should know that each of these are separate stations. Wahab indicates that outer knowledge is the knowledge of religious verdicts and legal rulings, the lawful and the unlawful stories and admonitions, that which the tongue manifests. This knowledge gives its possessor love and veneration. In his letter, Wahib warns against stopping at what people give out and thus becoming spiritually stagnant and trapped into seeking people's love and glorification. One who stops at this has been cut off from Allah and deluded by people from pursuing Allah's pleasure. By inner knowledge, he means that knowledge which touches the hearts and instills fear, exaltation, and glorification. Wahib urged him to use that knowledge to seek the love of Allah and his needs. Um... This reminds me of something that's important. I believe that there is a difference between knowledge and information. Okay, so like in Arabic, you would say there's a difference between ilm and ma'luma. Like some people that have ma'luma, <laughs> they have like a piece of trivia here, a piece of trivia there, but they don't have knowledge. Uh, I would venture to say that a lot of how we understand Islamic studies as a community is more about information than it is about knowledge. So people are in, like, we have to teach them Islam. Okay, so what does it mean? Well, we're just going to teach them, you know, uh, tafsir, for example. So, walk with me for a second before you push me off the cliff. <laughs> so teach them tafsir. And be like, okay, then what? Like, you teach them tafsir, you're teaching them a lot of information, but you're not necessarily teaching them how to put that information in a particular framework, right? Like you would study tafsir, you study it alongside everything else. And people, by the way, wouldn't write in tafsir usually until the end of their lives. So like scholars would write in tafsir at the end of their lives. They write in everything else first. And the sciences of Islam, the disciplines, the heart, you know. The, one of the teachers that we had in, in Egypt used to tell us when you go and you look for classes to attend and stuff, go to the hard sciences. Don't go to the soft ones. So he said, like, go to the Arabic language, go to usul fiqh, go to hadith sciences, go to mantiq, go to logic, go to all of these things, because those things, they teach you how to think. Then you can apply it to Islam for the rest of your life. You apply it to the Quran, you apply it to the hadith, you apply it to everything else for the rest of your life. If you have the actual, like, malaka, uh, malaka ilmiya, like there's a acumen, I think acumen is the, the word they use in English for, for this. So, you know, part of the actual foundational Islamic sciences is not to just give people a bunch of information. But like, this is what happens when the Day of Judgment comes. These are the minor signs, these are the major signs. It's really cool and interesting and like, alhamdulillah, it's nice. But it doesn't necessarily teach a person how to think. A big part of the Islamic sciences is how do you teach a person how to think? How do they engage with their text? How do they engage with their context? How do they understand the world? How do they figure out their place in it? All of that kind of stuff comes from the foundational sciences of Islam. Anyways, chapter four, categories of scholars. Many of the righteous forebearers, the Salaf, such as Sufyan Thori and others categorize scholars into various groups. The best of these groupings is epitomized by the scholar who knows both Allah and his commandments. By this expression, Sufyan refers to those who combine inner and outer knowledge. 
These are indeed, uh, these are the most distinguished scholars. They are praised by Allah, indeed among his servants. It is but the learned who fear Allah. Um, uh, but this, this verse actually kind of says the, the, not, the people of knowledge are the ones who have this khashya. They have a reverence and a fear and a humility in front of Allah. That's what makes a person a person of knowledge, regardless of how much knowledge they have. It's that knowledge of God that's primary. Okay, so this is also important. This is like, that is a knowledge that is largely equally accessible to everybody. So someone could memorize a hundred books and someone could read one book. And both of them are going to pray the same prayer. Both of them are going to fast the same fast in the sense that like, you know, the outwardly they're going to do the same thing. But what they can experience from their relationship from Allah is up to them. You know, it's, and, and it's of course Tawfiq and everything else. But um, that, And that's what makes them a true alim, which we kind of touched on last week. Allah also says, indeed, those who were given knowledge beforehand, when our signs are recited to them, they fall down prostrate on their faces saying, glorified is our Lord. Indeed, the promise of our Lord will be fulfilled. They fall down prostrate on their faces weeping and it increases them in humility. Many of the righteous forebears, that's uh, 17, 107 to 109. Many of the righteous forebears used to say, religious knowledge is not an abundance of memorized texts. Rather, knowledge is humility. Religious knowledge is not an abundance of memorized texts. Rather, knowledge is humility. I'm going to put my foot out. Forgive me for all the Eastern people. Uh, it fell asleep. So when it wakes up, I'll bring it back. Inshallah. Um, so I, I know someone who... Maybe I should say I've met someone who I believe to be uh, a great, great person. And he had something really interesting happen to him in his life, which is that his father was a great sheikh, came from a family of great scholars, so on and so forth. And when he was young, his father sent him to study. You know, they were in Africa. His father sent him to West Africa. It's well known that, like, especially in Mauritania, these places, like, they have a really strong traditional learning uh, that remains up to this day. It's very, very strong, you know. So his father sent him to the deserts of like Mauritania, Algeria, you know, this kind of like shared territory. And he stayed there for a number of years, finished everything he was supposed to finish, came back with all these licenses, you know, Ijazat to teach this and that, and that he's specialized in the Islamic sciences and so forth. And he brought them to his father and he handed them to his father and his father took them and he ripped them up. <laughs> <laughs> and he told them, this is not what you're meant to do. Like, this is something that you needed, you needed to get that knowledge, you know, but that's not the point. And so it goes to this whole, uh, knowledge is, knowledge is not an abundance of memorized text. Knowledge is humility. To the extent that like, sometimes things get complicated, you know, with governments and things, you want to get someone a visa. They're like, so what, what degree do they have? They're like, how do I explain to them the story? You know, like, actually, you know, did he did he graduate from anywhere? Like, well, yeah, but it was kind of like an informal system. It's lasted for a thousand years, but it's informal. Doesn't have accreditation. Well, it has its own accreditation, but it's not externally recognized accreditation. 
They're like, okay, well, do they have anything? No, he doesn't have anything because like his dad ripped up his documents. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what are you saying? <laughs> Anyways, uh, but knowledge is humility. One of them said, fear of Allah is sufficient knowledge and being deceived concerning Allah is sufficient ignorance. Right? So fear of Allah is sufficient knowledge. That's it. And to be deceived concerning Allah is sufficient ignorance. You have all the ignorance then. If you just, uh, you know, may Allah protect us. They further said, one who knows Allah experientially does not necessarily know the commandments of Allah. So we said, what? There's someone who can know Allah. There's someone who knows the commandments of Allah. So they could know Allah experientially, but they don't know the rules. They don't know the commands of Allah. It's true. It happens all the time. And someone else can know the commands of Allah, but they don't really know Allah. So they're talking about this relationship between us. He's fine, though. They further said, one who knows Allah experience, I said that such are the possessors of inner knowledge who lack adequate comp comprehension of juridical what matters. The righteous forebearers similarly said, one who knows the commands of Allah does not necessarily know Allah experientially. Such are the possessors of outer knowledge who have no inkling of inner knowledge. They neither fear Allah nor possess humility. They were deemed blameworthy by the righteous forebearers. One of them said concerning such a scholar, this type is corrupt. They stop at outer knowledge while beneficial knowledge fails to reach their hearts. They will never savor its fragrance. They have been overwhelmed by their negligence, their hardness of heart, and their aversion of the hereafter. They vie for the world, seeking exaltation in it, and are being glorious. It's so accurate. SubhanAllah, the human condition is the human condition. It's so accurate. You know, whatever, 600 years ago, 700 years ago, it's as if he's like speaking to last week. And again, you remember when we talked about Hadith Jibril and there's the there's the knowledge of the heart and there's the knowledge of the mind and there's what we should do with our body, right? Islam, Iman, Hassan. And I said, when you get rid of them, you get rid of certain parts, you create problems. So you get rid of the spiritual side, you create problems. You have people who are like very hard-hearted and they're seeking knowledge and so on. It's attributed to some of the early people that they say, مَنْ تَفَقَّهَ وَلَمْ they said that the one who studies the outward knowledge and they don't study the inward knowledge, they become corrupt. And the one who studies the inward knowledge and doesn't study the outward knowledge, they become deviant. And the one who studies the outward knowledge and the inward knowledge, then they hit the spot. You know, they, they get it right. We'll do um, the harm and enmity of corrupt scholars. Actually, I'm going to just go a little bit. We'll just finish a little bit. Corrupt scholars think ill of those who have obtained beneficial knowledge. So try to focus. I know we're not accustomed to just reading, listening to things read. Try to focus. We'll get through it, inshallah. Corrupt scholars think ill of those who have obtained beneficial knowledge. They do not love them, nor do they sit with them. Subhanallah. They may even condemn them. All of the four imams, they were the experts in outward knowledge, and they had inward knowledge, right? And they had sheikhs in inward knowledge. They had people they went to. Imam Abu Hanifa would go to Jafar al-Sadiq. Imam Malik would go to Imam Jafar al-Sadiq. Uh, Imam Ahmed would go to Shaybat al-Ra'i. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i would go to Sayyidina Nafisa. They would go to them. They're the experts in their time. 
Like a Shafi'i is the expert in his time. And every single day when he walks to his class and he passes by the house of Sayyidina Nafisa, he would stop and visit Sayyidina Nafisa, ask for her dua, so on and so forth. You know? Like this is, uh, even they say when he died, they wanted his janazah to be prayed, like close to her house, because she didn't really leave her house. She was an older woman and she was, you know. Uh, so they wanted her his janazah to be prayed close to her house so that she could join the salah. It's like, it's really important that she prays in my janazah. You know, so I think about like this, uh, this concept, but then you find the other phenomena, you know, I have knowledge, I don't need to sit with anyone else, I don't need to benefit from anyone else, I don't need this and that. They may even condemn them, they denounce them saying they are not real scholars. I did this, I did this, a great man one time we came to an Azhar and he was teaching and stuff. And I said, to, they called him like a da'iyan, you know, caller to Allah. And I was like, look, you know, it's calling to Allah. He's not from the Ulema. <laughs> he was a great person. I'll leave with that. Like, May Allah forgive us. But like, just to be real, that these things, like that's what, again, you have to put the framework right. Because when the framework is wrong, you do stuff like that over and over and over again. You don't even realize you're doing it. And so this is why we have to kind of go through these things. Uh, they are not real scholars. This is from the treachery of Satan and his deception, which prevents these corrupt scholars from attaining beneficial knowledge, which Allah, his messenger, the righteous forebears of the Muslim nation and its imams have all praised. For this reason, worldly scholars dislike righteous scholars, and they strive to their utmost to harm them, just as they endeavored to harm Sa'id ibn Musayyib, Hassan al-Basri, Sufyan al-Thawri, Imam Malik, Imam Ahmed, and other upright scholars, may Allah be pleased with them. This is because, right, this is because righteous scholars are the successors of the messengers. Whereas worldly scholars resemble those who have earned the wrath of Allah, those who are the enemies of the messengers, the slayers of the prophets and murderers of the righteous. They are most intense in their enmity and envy towards the believers. Because of their intense love of the world, these corrupt scholars appreciate neither religious knowledge nor true religion. Instead, they glorify wealth, status, and positions of advantage with the rulers. One of the ministers said to Mufti Hajjaj ibn Arta, you know well jurisprudence and theology. Hajjaj said, why didn't you instead say, you have honor and esteem? The minister said, I swear by Allah, you belittle what Allah has extolled, and you extol what Allah has belittled. The deception of Satan. We're going to finish the chapter. Many of those claiming inner knowledge speak about it, limit themselves to it, and condemn outer knowledge, namely the study of the Sharia legal rulings and matters concerning the lawful and the unlawful. So first, he talked about one problem. One problem is outward knowledge with no concern for the inward. Now he's in the second problem, which is inward concern with no concern for the outward. Uh, and they defame its people saying that they are veiled and are people of superficiality. So you'll see this too. People are like really interested in spiritual things. They don't like the, main, the scholars of outward knowledge. Say, oh, they don't understand. They're veiled from the true realities. They're very superficial. They don't have deep understanding, so on and so forth. They'll say these kind of things. This irresponsible attitude engenders vilification of the pure Sharia and the righteous deeds that the prophets brought, encouraged and fostered. Some of them go so far as to absolve themselves of the need to perform acts of worship, claiming that worship is for the masses. They claim that one who has attained nearness to Allah has no need for worship. In fact, such rituals are considered a veil for them. Junaid and others have said concerning such people, what they have, what they have attained is only hellfire. So they say, we have something special with Allah that we don't have to do these things. We don't have to follow these rules. We don't have to pray the prayer. We can skip the prayer. I can touch women. It's okay because like I'm pure, you know, so I can touch them and, you know, they can touch me and like the rules don't apply to me and so on and so forth. So Junaid, he said what? When Junaid, Junaid is sad. He's like, and the, he's the imam of spirituality. 
like we have the imams in Medhad and Junaid is the imam of spirituality. He said, they've attained something. It's the hellfire. <laughs> they got something all right, but it's the hellfire. That's, this claim that adherence to Sharia is unnecessary is from the greatest treachery and deception of Satan towards such people. He will continue to play with them until he causes them to apostatize from Islam. Among this group of deceived scholars are those who imagine that inner knowledge is not received from the lamp of prophethood, nor from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but that it issues from personal divination and mystical inspiration. They entertain malicious thoughts toward the perfect Sharia, thinking that it hasn't come with the sort of knowledge that rectifies hearts and draws people to, to near to Allah and the knower of Gansi. So one of the things they'll do is they'll say, like, this spirituality that I'm getting, they get it from other than the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So in essence, this is very common today, right? Like new age spirituality, even among Muslims. Muslims use all kinds of words. They're like, I'm sending you vibes. I'm like, can you send me dua? Like, what is what is vibes actually? I'm sending you <laughs> vibes. Vibes is such a funny word. Uh, you know, and of course, there's a, there's ways you can interpret it. I'm not saying like it's not necessarily 100% wrong, right? Someone could say like, for someone's heart to be with you is actually a good thing. That's not completely like bottom. It's not completely out of out of reason. But like, the point that people are like, you know, uh, what are the yoga benefits of salah? Well, like, do you believe that salah is sufficient for you, or is yoga sufficient for you? Well, the hikmah, you know, the wisdom is wherever you find it. It's true, wisdom is wherever you find it, as long as you are coming from a position of like the Sharia is superior, you know? But if you're coming from a position of inferiority, like I have to find good everywhere else and figure out how I can shove it into my thing so I can feel better about myself, then that's a problem. That's, we have to actually, you know, uh, be strong a little bit on this. So, and this is not new. This is not new. Like people of spirituality, quote unquote, would make these kind of claims throughout history. So what was he saying? They entertain malicious thoughts towards the perfect Sharia, thinking that it hasn't come with the sort of knowledge that rectifies hearts and draws people near to Allah. So what, the way of the Prophet doesn't bring people close to Allah? Like, what is going to bring you close to Allah if this Sharia is not going to bring you close to Allah? It's the way the Prophet brought. Uh, this attitude ultimately produces in them a total rejection of what the Messenger of Allah brought in this regard and leads them to talk about spiritual matters on the basis of conjecture and fancy. They are astray and they lead others astray. Last section, examples of virtuous scholars. It is clear from this that the most complete and virtuous of scholars are those who are knowledgeable of Allah and his commandments. They combine the two kinds of knowledge, the outer and the inner, which they receive from the Quran and the Sunnah. They examine what people say on the basis of the Quran and the Sunnah. That which agrees with these sources, they accept, and that which contradicts them, they reject. <coughs> these scholars are the elite of mankind, the best of humanity after the prophets. They are the true successors of the prophets and messengers. They were many among the companions including the four righteous caliphs, Mu'adh, Abu Darda, Samman, Ibn Mas'ud, Ibn Amr, Ibn Abbas, and many others. Similarly, from the generation after them, there were the likes of Sayyid ibn Musayyib, Hassan al-Basri, Atal, Tawus, Mujahid, Sayyid ibn Jubair, and Nakhai, Yahya ibn Abi Kathir, and others. And among those who came after the latter, there were people like Athori, Al-Awza'i, Ahmed, and others among the righteous scholars. Athori and Al-Awza'i were people who were in the generation of the four imams, they had also madhab. They were like madhab imams. But there were many madhab imams in that time. Just so people understand. It wasn't the four. There were like dozens of them. But the, what distinguishes the four is that their work was fully um, preserved and analyzed and passed down generation upon generation. Whereas these other works of these other imams, 
We might have like one statement, two statements, five statements, but we don't have 200,000, you know, like we have in the case of some of the Imams. Ali ibn Abi Talib has dubbed them godly scholars, Rabbaniyun, indicating their praiseworthy status. Their kind is referred to in more than one place in the Quran. Ali says of them, people are of three groups, righteous scholars, students of sacred knowledge, and the riffraff. He then went on at length to describe both corrupt and righteous scholars. We expound on them elsewhere in this book. Uh, by the way, you don't have to study eight hours a day to be in the category of students of sacred knowledge. <laughs> you come once a week, you sit in something, you try to listen to some things that are beneficial, you live your life. It's okay, inshallah, you're, you're not in the riffraff category. <laughs> inshallah. <laughs> Any comments, questions people have? Allah Yes, Tom. Can you yeah, that's a really good question. It's probably going to get me thrown off the deep end. But, you know, we're already in the deep end, so we might as well. Uh, so... <clears throat> What they would generally say is that, by the way, it's 11.30, so if you have kids, you might want to check on them, because uh, I think my wife has to leave, so don't rely on her. <laughs> but if they're playing around and stuff, of course, that's, that's fine. Um, in brief, uh, they would say that the Imams in Aqidah are, as you mentioned, Ash'ari and Maturidi and Imam Ahmed. In fiqh, the Imams are, for Sunni Islam, uh, Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'i, Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And that in spirituality, the Imam is Junaid. They would only put Junaid. Usually that's what we hear from like the written in the books and talked about from the early people. Although, like, Junaid is representative of a method in that way. So, so in some ways, let's put it this way. What makes belief orthodox? What makes belief orthodox is that it follows certain set of parameters that have been laid out by these imams, right? What makes our actions orthodox is that they fall into an acceptable position according to these imams. What makes someone's spiritual practice orthodox is actually much simpler because it's already laid out in the other two. So what Imam Junaid would say is he would say, tariquna hadha muqayyidun bil kitabi wa sunnah he would say, this knowledge of ours, this knowledge of Islamic spirituality, is restricted by the Qur'an and by the Sunnah. So the one who does not sit in the gatherings of Hadith, does not take their knowledge of Fiqh from the people of Fiqh, and does not take their Adab from the people of Adab, then they will corrupt the one who follows them. It's a beautiful statement of Junaid. Very scary, but beautiful. So basically what he's saying is, the way of Junaid and spirituality is, as long as your spiritual practice and understanding can be justified by 
the schools in Akhida and the schools in Fiqh, then it's orthodox. Okay, so this is like level one. It's very basic. So all of the people who were like from the early generation of Muslims who were committed to this practice, and it was understood, like when you read the biographies, you read the history and stuff, it was understood who were the imams in the different disciplines. You know, this person was an imam in this, this person was an imam in that, so on and so forth. It was known. Like the people of Zuhud, they usually called them the people of Zuhud in that period of like asceticism. They were known who, who they were. So, and they were accepted insofar as they submitted to the teachings of Aqidah and the teachings of Fiqh. Okay. That's how it stayed for a long time. And the relationship between the student and the teacher in that regard was uh, less formal than what would come later in which you, in these different Sufi orders, these Turuq that you mentioned. Okay. Uh, around the time of Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani, he kind of formalizes the process more. And uh, that's when you start to see these Sufi orders pop up. You know, so you have the order of the Qadiris, which is from Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani. You have the order of the Shadris from uh, Sheikh Abdul Hassan al-Shadri. You have the Naqshbandis from, uh, I forget his name, subhanAllah, but from Naqshbandi. You have the Chishtis, you have the uh, Rifais. You have many, many different paths, okay? Uh, usually, if you're, if you're talking about like the major paths, uh, usually their founders, so to speak, were people who were well-known and attested to in their time. So that's the first issue. Like Imam Shadini was known. Yeah, Abdul Qadir Jilani was known. He wasn't like some random guy sitting in a basement doing rupi on women somewhere or something, out of the you know. Um, <clears throat> which is what you have now, So these people were known. And like, then after that, it's more of like, this person has some sort of understanding of their relationship with Allah. And because they've gone through it, they're able to help other people go through it. It's essentially what it comes down to. And certain paths might emphasize a particular dhikr, or they might emphasize certain practices over other practices. But in the end, all of them, if they're sound, fall into the realm of the aqidah and the sharia. At the same time, of course, you have a bunch of people who claim all kinds of things that have nothing to do with reality and a complete falsehood. And you, know. and you have also, like with the passing of time, all kinds of things. Like you have many, many, many different Qadri sheikhs, for example, just to take an example, Qadri sheikhs all over the world. Some of them are probably actually righteous, good people. And some of them are without a doubt, corrupt people who are just seeking money and power and controlling other people and everything else. So in the end, all of that stuff, it's known by the Sharia. It's known by the Sharia and the Sharia is over it. But the idea of like Tasawwuf and even Sufi orders and all this kind of stuff, you know, like even the ulama who critiqued it, because we're talking about the orders and stuff we're talking about 900 years ago started. So all like a bunch of the great people we read about, we read their books, all of this kind of stuff. They actually belong to these things. So their issue was not the idea of Tasawwuf. Their issue was the extremes of Tasawwuf and how it can be used to mislead people, how it can deceive people, how it can be used to abuse people and so on and so forth. You know, and they would always warn against that. Um, so that's up to today. Azhar is like that. You know. But at this and at the same time, you know, many people would say that you don't have to do that. 
Like if someone learns Islam and they follow the Quran, they follow the Sunnah, they take the way of the Prophet them, they have some regular worship, they have good companies, stuff like that. Inshallah will benefit them. Right. One should be kind of careful in these things, I think. Yes. Yes, it is action. Yeah, so <clears throat> the bridge between the outer knowledge and the inner knowledge is to act upon what we learn. So I learned, for example, let me try to find a practical example for myself. I learned, for example, that I should control my anger and be patient. I know this from a number of hadith of the Prophet I know it from so many verses in the Quran. I know that Allah rewards those who are patient with the reward that is not equivalent to anyone else's reward. All of these things, right? But all of that doesn't necessarily make me patient in the moment I need to be patient. Right? So like, it's been a long day. I'm hungry. And, you know, first thing that happens when you come home is like kids yelling about something. And now it's like, if I can pause long enough to think about it, it's like, right, this is a moment where it needs some work. And in order to get all of these acts of worship that we do and all of these things that we try to follow from the Sunnah of the Prophet them, they have a light to them. But in order to get the light in the heart, we have to do it. So if I, if I have that moment where I'm like, okay, I'm going to have patience right now. You know, Allah give me patience, Allah help me make dua. <clears throat> There's moments when we know, for example, we should make dua. We make dua in that moment, there will be an illumination that comes from that. And if we don't, we miss that chance. You know, There's gratitude that we're supposed to have. If we have that gratitude, it will. So that's, that's the, and to be consistent with these things. If we're consistent with them, then inshallah, the inner knowledge will come with time. Um, our teachers always say that if, if like, thing to focus on is just love people and serve people. I think I mentioned it here, but did I mention it here? Yeah. That, like, people, you know, the first time I heard that from one of my teachers, I mentioned that he was cooking. I, mentioned, I don't think I mentioned it. So I visited this person, this elderly man, inshallah, a very knowledgeable person. And I went to visit him, and alhamdulillah, we sat and we spoke a little bit and started to ask him, you know, questions about Islam and stuff. And eventually, they started off very intellectual and they started to get more practical, right? So, because he's a great scholar, so I came with my intellectual questions. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking. And then eventually, he's like, you must be hungry. You had a trip before you came here. You flew in and stuff. So he goes to the kitchen. He starts cooking food, like warming up food for me and stuff. It's really awkward because he's literally 30 years older than me. Um, and warming up the food. And I'm like, so what is this whole thing about? You know, He's like, the whole thing is about love and service. He's like, <laughs> you know, warming up the food. And the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, love and service. That's great. Like, sounds good. You know, alhamdulillah, I don't have to pray all night. I'm good. Love and service. Great. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then I went home and I was like, oh, man, love and service is hard. Like, it's really actually hard. But Prophet them loves people and serve people. So we try to love people and serve people. And 
and we'll make it easy for us. Yeah, Satana Nafisa. Satana Nafisa is buried in Cairo. Um, I don't know what else to mention. I mean, I think, I feel like Imam Zaid has a lecture online about Sayyidina Nafisa. You might find it on YouTube or something. Um, Sayyidina Nafisa is, she was from the family of the Prophet she's several, she's in the time of Imam Shafi, like I mentioned, so talking like Imam Shafi was born in 150 after Hijrah. So she's roughly, you know, in that realm, uh, around 200 after Hijrah. And she's from the family of the Prophet. I think her father was a Hassan al-Anwar. And she was just known. She was known to be, her dad, Her dua was answered. She was known that her dua was answered. She was known that um, she was kind of like the inheritor in a sense of Sayyidah Zainab, especially in like, you know, the folk understanding. Sayyidah Zainab is the sister of Al-Hassan and Hussein. So Sayyidah Zainab, she also came to Egypt and was buried in Egypt. They say that when Sayyidah Zainab came to Egypt, uh, the, the rulers and the governors and the people, they came out to the, end, to the edges of the city and they greeted her and they paraded her in because they were so excited that Sayyidah Zainab came to Egypt. Like She's like, you know, who she is. She's called Sahib al-Shura or Sahib al-Diwan, that the rulers used to take her advice, used to get du'a from her. And Sayyidah Nafisa is kind of similar, like from, the, you know, these righteous people who, Essentially, it comes down to she was a righteous person. She used to pray, she used to fast, she used to... But biggest thing always is her dua was answered. And there's many beautiful stories about her dua being answered and stuff like that. And as I mentioned, Imam Shafi used to go to her and seek her dua, seek her advice, seek her, um, her good counsel and stuff like that. So uh, that's the most I can remember off the top of my head. But I think Imam Zaid has a, has a lecture on her online. Imam Zaid Shankar. Um, but yeah, she's buried there too. Her, they have a masjid for her, Sayyidah Nafisa masjid where she's buried. They have Sayyidah Zainab masjid where she's buried in, in Cairo. So, so like important places in Cairo. They also have Sayyidah Aisha, also from the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi one of these great women. So, Egypt's really interesting like that, you know? Sometimes you hear from, <clears throat> from uh, Shia Muslims, like Sunnis, they don't like Ahlul Bayt and they don't care about Ahlul Bayt, the family of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi and stuff like that. Is very untrue. So may we always be from those who uh, have loyalty to Ahnibate, to the family of the prophets in the moment, something that means something. Anyways, anyone else have anything? Someone else had their hand up, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so the question was, speaking of Sufi orders and tariqas and stuff, what do you think about some of these like non-tariqa Sufi things, like the Ba'alawis or like maybe some of the Mauritanians and so on? Um, 
I mean, to say that the Ba'alwis are non-Tariqa is, I know it's, they're like kind of non-Tariqa. <laughs> you know, uh, but they kind of aren't at the same time. Because <laughs> they're essentially Shadini. But, um, I don't know. I mean, a lot of things that are really important, they're also really easy to get wrong. And nothing is fail safe, but part of part of the idea of tariqa is to provide a little bit of a safety valve on these things, you know. But um, at the same time, it can be a problem sometimes too. So, in the end, if someone has something special with Allah, alhamdulillah, they have something special with Allah. If they can help someone, they can help someone. Alhamdulillah. Uh, but I think that one of the things to consider too is that. A lot of issues in spirituality, they deal with people's practical lives. And so things that were meant for a certain time and place don't necessarily fit well with another time and place. So, for example, like a lot of Ottoman sheikhs were like really strict, you know, and it might not work well for like Americans, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, it, it, you know. I don't know. Short of it is that I don't really know. Uh, I don't think that I really have much business commenting on something of that level. But, um, you know, I think that it's just good to, like in the end, if someone is going to dabble in these things, it's really important to recognize that the Quran is the Quran, the Sunnah is the Sunnah, the way of Islam is the way of Islam, the Sharia is the Sharia, and that's the ultimate arbiter. And no matter how uh, because these issues also, there's a lot of charisma involved in them, you know, like people get really attached to their teacher for various reasons. And in the end, like all of it, it has to be put in the right place. You know, if it's put in the right place, then it's subject to the right things and I'm keeping things in, then inshallah that will help us because oftentimes there are issues. There's no shortage of false teachers. There's no shortage of false paths. There's no shortage of people who tell you really amazing things or you have really amazing experiences with them. By the way, it's not an evidence of their righteousness. Everyone, it's very important. In Islamic spirituality, this was known. Like just because someone, for example, you might go in front of a sheikh and they might tell you things about yourself that you're like, subhanAllah, how could they know that? They must be a great sheikh. Well, yeah, or they mess with jinn. I mean, both of them are possible. <laughs> so, you know, like, show you, show you. <laughs> Take everything <laughs> a little bit, little bit. Like, I've heard stories of certain people that, like, oh, subhanAllah. And then I ask other people, like, shayukh about it, and they're like, yeah, alam. you know, like, there's not, there could be more there to than you think, you know. Uh, so... The challenge with spirituality is that it's a, it's a matter of the unseen. Matters of the unseen are very difficult to deal with, right? Because you don't see it, and uh, and miracles are not always miracles, right? Like, and and a break of the norm is not always a karama. A break of the norm sometimes is istidraj. This is again well known in the books of spirituality and aqidah and stuff. Istidraj is when Allah, you're wrong actually. And Allah gives you things that are seemingly miraculous to keep you on a path of wrong, to lead you to your destruction. Right? So people have that too. People, people, I mean, the Jal will have things like that, right? 
the jad will do things that people think are miraculous and so on and so forth. Like, so it's not that simple. The Sharia is very, very important. And don't get taken by uh, charisma in these issues. You know, like, oh, they said this beautiful thing. They did this thing. I felt this way when I was with them. I felt this way when I was with them. What is this, like, teenagers in love or something? Like, this is not. <laughs> Maybe you did, but, like, be careful, you know? Like, be careful with these kind of things. Yeah, I've had amazing experiences with people. I've had I've had amazing experiences with people that I that I believe are truly righteous people. I've had amazing experiences with people that I think maybe they were doing some other things too. You know? So Alhamdulillah protect us. <laughs> we're off in La La Land and it's still recording. Stop the recording. <laughs>